With my recent trip to India, my wife asked me to uh, make sure that I updated our will and our estate planning and all that sort of thing. Uh, thankfully, we didn't need it. I made it home in one piece. But in that process, we were thinking about funerals and stuff like that. And so I just turned to my wife, because I've been thinking about this, and I said, that's a hymn I want sung in my funeral. I will glory my Redeemer who waits for me at gates of gold. And when he calls me, it'll be paradise. How sweet that is, isn't it? I'm thankful for our Savior. Well, the theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is superior. He is superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses and to Sinai. His covenant is, new covenant is superior to the old covenant. He's superior to the Levitical priesthood. He's superior to anyone and anything that we might put our trust or hope in. Now, when we talk of someone being superior, we could get the idea that they're far off and out of touch, right? Uh, it's interesting, if, you, if you're a follower of political developments in our country, one of the tactics uh, that is used by either, on either side an opponent is they try to paint our leaders as out of touch. Uh, he's out of touch. I remember uh, one of our presidents a number of years ago, many years ago now, uh, uh, someone was uh, in one of those gotcha moments saying, asked him, do you know how much a loaf of bread costs? And I dare say, if I asked all the men in this church, how many of you know how much a loaf of bread costs? Uh, we'd all go, I don't know, my wife does the shopping. Uh, the truth is, I actually bought a loaf of bread within the past week, and I still can tell you how much they cost. <laughs> all right? But there's this effort to paint those leaders as out of touch, therefore disqualified to be knowledgeable and effective servants in those positions. Well, this morning... The text we come to shows us that not only is Jesus greater, as we've been looking at, but he's also in touch more than we could ever imagine. There is a solidarity that he has with his people. Verse 9 tells us he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And that statement, that he might taste death for everyone, points to a solidarity he has toward all who trust in him, all those for whom he died. He took our place. He suffered the punishment that we deserved. That was the greatest possible expression of the grace of God. And this text will expand on that solidarity that Jesus has shared with us. Three points in the text I hope to draw out this morning. One is that he shared in our suffering. Jesus shared in our suffering. Secondly, Jesus shared in our nature. And then thirdly, Jesus shared our flesh and blood. Well, let's look together. Jesus, first of all, shared our suffering. We read in verse 10, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Just stop and think for a moment about this statement, our Lord of glory, for whom and through whom all things exist, suffered. Jesus suffered willingly chose to suffer. The eternal God, the eternal God, the Son who was with God, who was God, who possessed infinite glory from all eternity dwelt in unapproachable light, the creator of the world for whom and by whom all things exist, he chose willingly to suffer. He willingly took to himself the frailty of human flesh so that he might suffer. Our natural inclination is to view suffering as something that should be avoided at all possible costs. But the reality is suffering is an inevitable part of this life. No matter what 
precautions or safety measures you take, sooner or later it will come knocking on your door. We all suffer because we live in a world that is under the curse. We live in a broken, fallen world, and the brokenness and the fallenness impacts our lives, and there's nothing we can do to stop it absolutely. Now, granted, we live in a very comfortable and prosperous culture. So much of the suffering that's a, day, a part of the daily life in other lands and other places, and, and some within our own culture sometimes, uh, many of us don't experience that. But sooner or later, in one way or another, it is a lot of every son of Adam, every daughter of Eve, every person who walks on the face of this earth. God said to Adam, the day that you eat of this fruit, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Now, Adam didn't drop dead in that moment. But death entered the world, and the process of death began in Adam and Eve, and the world and Adam and Eve were placed under a curse. Sin entered, and death came through sin, and the result is that suffering has been the lot of every man and woman ever since. And however hard we may try, we cannot completely avoid suffering in this life. It's just part and parcel of our human existence. So here we have Jesus, the lawgiver, not the lawbreaker, the lawgiver, the one who was offended by our violation of his law. Adam's rebellion, our rebellion was against him and his authority. He was and he is worthy of eternal worship, and yet he willingly chose to suffer. And the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Why, if he didn't have to, would he choose to suffer. We see here that his suffering was purposeful. It was to bring many sons to glory. He, he tasted death for those whom he would redeem. And so the founder and the author of our salvation, the Lord Jesus, that word founder uh, can, can, has also been translated, I think, in King James as the author of our salvation. It's the one who originates it, the one who provides it, the one who leads the way. And he was, we read here, he was made perfect through suffering. His suffering did not begin at the cross. That was the culmination of his suffering. But it began as soon as he laid aside his glory and he was deprived of that which was his eternal right and his eternal joy. And his entire life on this earth was a life that was marked by suffering. Isaiah told us that he is a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He was despised and rejected of men as men, uh, uh, he was a, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. The one who deserved more love, more respect, more appreciation, more, uh, he deserved worship. And he was hated and despised and rejected. Ladies, have you ever had one of those days where you just, you felt so bad you didn't want to put, up, put on any makeup, you didn't want to comb your hair, and you just didn't look the way you like to look ordinarily when you go out, and then somebody knocks on the door and you're just kind of mortified? Imagine what Jesus felt every single day, having no appearance that would people be attracted to him, knowing that all glory is his. 
The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. But his suffering, again, was purposeful. He took to himself a mortal human body. He experienced the same kinds of suffering that you and I experience. Hebrews 4 tells us he was tempted in every way that we are, yet he never sinned. In verse 18 here in chapter 2, it says, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. His suffering was purposeful. He suffered that he might help us, but he suffered also that he might redeem us. So let me ask you this question. Was it necessary for Jesus to suffer? Did he have to? Shorter answer is no, he didn't. He didn't have to suffer. He could have remained in glory, untouched by the suffering of man, and God would have been perfectly just to condemn every single one of us to our just punishment, eternal condemnation in hell. That would have been fair. That would have been just. That would have been righteous. Because that is what we in and of ourselves truly deserve. He did not have to suffer. He did not have to redeem us. But God is rich in mercy. He's abounding in grace and loving kindness. You remember in in, in Exodus, Moses asked the Lord, show me your glory. And so God, in revealing his glory, declares his character. This is what God says to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. How can God demonstrate his steadfast love and faithfulness if every single one of his Creatures made in his image is condemned to eternal punishment. He didn't need us to fill up something that was lacking in him. God wasn't lonely or lacking in glory or anything like that, but he delights to show mercy and love, and so he does so to sinful men. He delights to pour out that steadfast love and faithfulness, and he does so to us because our sin presented a barrier between us and God. It was a, there was hostility on our part, and there was judgment on his part. And we need to be reconciled to God. And the only way for God to reconcile sinful men to himself is that uh, the, 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 the demands of divine justice had to be met. His holy wrath had to be satisfied. Romans 3 tells us that Jesus redeemed us from the penalty of sin as a propitiation, that big word, propitiation, it's a Bible word. It's in the Bible several times. It means to satisfy God's divine justice. It means to pay the penalty and to turn away his wrath otherwise that would fall upon us. It's a Godward transaction. There's the forgiveness of our sins, the changing and the transformation of us that's manward, but there's the Godward satisfaction of his wrath, the propitiation. And it says that Jesus presented himself as a propitiation so that God might be just and the justifier of those who come to him through Jesus Christ. In other words, in order for God to save anyone and maintain his justice, propitiation became absolutely necessary. The only way God could forgive our sins without compromising his justice was for Jesus to take our place and to pay that for us. So I, again, I ask the question, was it absolutely necessary for Jesus to suffer? And again, the answer is no. But God, who was determined to express his mercy and his grace, his loving kindness, because he was intent on redeeming for himself a people, then that suffering becomes absolutely necessary. 
On one hand, we could say the atonement wasn't necessary because God could have justly condemned us all. But because God was determined to deal with us in steadfast love, grace, and mercy, consequently, the atonement becomes absolutely necessary. There's a big theological term there, the consequent absolute necessity of the atonement. It wasn't necessary on its face, but because God is determined to save, then that's the only way it could happen. Jesus' death, his suffering, consequently becomes necessary. Not because we deserve that redemption, but because God is rich in mercy and loving kindness. So he didn't have to suffer, but he chose to. And he, in fact, it says here that it was fitting for him to suffer, not because he deserved it. It would be fitting for us to, to suffer forever. That would be just. It would be appropriate. But the only way Jesus could be qualified to be our redeemer is for him to suffer he was made perfect, it says, through suffering. We, we read in holy, 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 perfect in power and love and purity. So how can Hebrews say that Jesus needs to be made perfect through suffering? Well, he was righteous from all eternity. Again, perfect in power, love, and purity. There was nothing morally deficient about Jesus. He's a sinless son of God. So in that sense, he didn't need to be made perfect. But it was necessary for him to be qualified to serve as the mediator between God and man. As God, he can represent God faithfully, but he has to be a man to represent man faithfully. And in order to truly represent us as our mediator, as our redeemer, he must suffer those things which we suffered. He had to experience the same kinds of things we experienced. Again, verse 18, because he has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. He became qualified. And that word perfect also has that sense of put together, qualified. There were certain requirements a priest had to go through before he was qualified to go into the temple and to give the sacrifices that were required. He was not qualified until certain criteria were met. Well, for Jesus, that criteria involved suffering as a man. And only because he is man is he able to fully identify with and sympathize with the kind of afflictions and trials and heartaches you and I experience. He redeemed us, and he's able to help us. It's fitting because that's what's required in order for God to express his loving kindness to sinful men. It's fitting because it's the greatest possible expression of love. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But God has greater love than that. In Romans 5, 8, it says God demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, not friends, sinners, Christ died for us. And in verse 10, the same chapter, it says we were enemies when he died for us. He reconciled us the only way possible to himself, the only way possible through this death of his son, the Lord Jesus. Now, again, were we worthy of that reconciliation? Did we deserve such a gift? Of course not. It's grace, utterly undeserved. Not something you or I could ever earn, not anything you or I could ever qualify ourselves for. Jesus was qualified to give it. We don't have to be qualified to receive it. 
and any efforts to somehow uh, uh, make up for the bad things we've done to, to self-justify is an insult to the grace of God. It's like, you didn't do enough, Jesus. I need to add a little bit to it. No, we don't. We can rest in the finished work of our Savior who suffered for us. It was fitting that God would go to such lengths expressing his love for us to redeem us and make us his. That's fitting when we think about God in his character, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, on the one hand, if we look at the life of Jesus, it was scandalous. It was scandalous that he would be treated the way he was treated. Sinful men would abuse him. They would falsely accuse him. They would crucify him in a total travesty of justice. But on the other hand, it was fitting that Jesus would share in our suffering and in fact that he would bear our sin and pay for it himself and that he might become for us a sympathetic high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses and temptations because he himself experienced that. It's not something he read about in the book. It's not something that he could simply say, I am omniscient, I know all things, therefore I know what suffering's like. He experienced it personally as a man laid aside his glory and took on that human frailty, that human mortality, that he might experience the full range of human sufferings, that he might bring many mortal, sinful, frail, suffering human beings, you and me, to glory. He shared our suffering. But secondly, he shared our nature. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. That one source that ESV translates, it's, it's literally all are from one. And we sort of have to figure out one what. From one what? One source. One, uh, there are a lot, of, a lot of different views. It really boils down to one nature or one family. They all come from the, we both come from the same father or we share the same nature. I think it's kind of both. Let me tell you what I mean. By nature, you and I are all sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, right? That's our human nature, our Adamic nature, we might call it. And in that Adamic human nature, we did what our nature was inclined to do. We rebelled against God, and we didn't trust him. We didn't want to submit to him. We followed the inclinations of our own heart that were always inclined away from God. Jesus took to himself not only human flesh, but a human nature. We speak of the Lord Jesus even now. He, the only redeemer of God's elect, this is catechism, is the Lord Jesus Christ who was uh, God, but he became man and he dwells, uh, and so he was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures, one person forever. A human nature and a divine nature. Jesus took to us a human, or to himself rather, a human nature. He shares that with us. Now he shared human nature with all people around the world. Any person, he had a human nature. But there's something more profound going on here in Hebrews because it's very specific that that nature which with, with which he shares is a nature that qualifies us to be children of God. 
the one source, that one thing that we are from, as it were, uh, that qualifies us to be called his brothers and sisters. It's a source that secures our adoption and our sanctification. So we need to look further than our original human nature. When we're redeemed, when we come to Christ, we receive a new nature, a nature that's now inclined toward the Lord. We're still human, but it's now a redeemed human nature. And his law is placed in our hearts, and that heart of stone is taken away, and it's replaced with a heart of flesh. And we are adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. We're set free from sin. And we have the nature of a son or a daughter and a Holy Spirit who testifies in us that we are sons and daughters of God. Do you know something of that testimony of the Holy Spirit that cries, Abba, Father? It's not when you're taking your hot tea or your coffee and your Bible and going into a private place and having a quiet time and somehow you're just flooded with a great sense. In Romans 8, it speaks about the Holy Spirit who cries, It's a cry of distress is what the word means. Abba, Father. Do you know those moments of near panic where the impulse of your heart was to cry out to your Father in heaven? You didn't have to stop and think, what's a theologically appropriate thing to do right now? It's just what comes out because the spirit of adoption is there in you pointing you to where you need to go. Do you know that experience? We have that nature in us that calls God our Father. It's the nature of a child of God. We're still human. Now, we're not divine like Jesus, who has a divine nature and a human nature, but there is this redeemed human nature, and the inclination of that redeemed nature is to live for the Lord and please Him. The one who sanctifies as Jesus is sanctifying us. I believe that's the reason there's an emphasis on sanctification. It's not, it doesn't say in the text that he who justifies and those who are justified have one source. It could say that. That would make sense. This is sanctified. Justification means that initial declaration, I'm righteous in Christ. He paid for my sins. He gives me his perfect righteousness, and I stand before him complete. That's a a transaction that takes place immediately when we trust in Jesus Christ. Sanctification is that lifelong process that begins at that moment And God is molding us and shaping us and conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ and restoring his, that broken or not, that defaced image inside of us. We were created in the image of God. It wasn't lost at sin, but it sure was badly defaced, distorted. So now God is smoothing it out again and restoring it us. We're being sanctified. In fact, the word here is in the present tense, meaning a process, not simply something that happened back there like justified would be. We are all, hear me, if you're a Christian, we're all half-baked. We're semi-sanctified. We're not done yet. We're not. We're further along than we were when we started, but we're not where we're going to end up. God's at work, and he will complete the good work that he's begun in us. And it's a work We can be confident in because of the founder, the author of our salvation said it is finished. Jesus is the only begotten son of God. You and I, if you're a Christian, you are an adopted son or daughter of God. God is our father. We have this new redeemed, sanctified nature, this redeemed nature that's being sanctified, becoming more and more like his holy, perfect 
human nature. So we're of the same family, of the same source, as it were. And there's this amazing statement here. Because of that, it says Jesus is not ashamed to be called our brothers. No, why would Jesus, why might he be ashamed to call you his brother? I asked that question Wednesday night in prayer meeting because we talked about this text. I like to do a little bit of a preview of what I'm going to preach and, and, and give you the opportunity to think through how we, uh, how we explore a text and draw questions out and seek answers to that. Uh, love to have you join us. But I asked that question, and it was very quick. People said, because we're sinners. And there's a sense in which we would be a stain on the family, an embarrassment. We're not worthy of being called his brother. You remember the story of the prodigal son? He goes off, he, he, he demands his father, give me all my inheritance now, which is utterly inappropriate. You don't get the inheritance until your father dies. But he wants it now before his dad dies. Basically he's saying, I so despise you, all I care about is what I want you to give it to me, so give it to me, give it now. And so the father gives him half of his belongings. And the son goes off and he squanders it all in wicked, profligate living. And when he is utterly destitute and he's feeding on the pods of pigs, which was the most disgraceful thing imaginable to a Jew, he finally comes home to his father expecting that his father would say, well, there's a place for you in the servant house. You can go over there. And the father embraces him and, and, and kisses him and gives him a ring and, and, and throws a, a, a feast because my son who was dead has come back and he's alive. Well, you remember the older brother? He was offended. Like, wait a minute. I have obeyed you all my life. I've never disobeyed you. You've never thrown a party for me. You've never slain the fatted calf for me and my friends. And he says something really Painful. He says, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. He doesn't say, when my brother came home, he says, this son of yours, because he has disowned that brother. I'm ashamed to admit that we're from the same family. And he's even angry at the father for not doing the same. He was ashamed to identify with his brother. You know what? We deserve worse treatment from that, from that from the Lord, but he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He delights to embrace us as his own. And again, the sins we committed, these sins were not simply against God the Father. These are sins against God the Son and God the Holy Spirit too. God is the lawgiver. We're the lawbreakers, and he was the target of our rebellion. And yet Jesus longed for, if I can use that term, he longed for our Redemption and our reconciliation just as much as the Father. And he delights to make us brothers and sisters and is delighted to call us brothers and sisters. Have you ever been with a friend and a brother or sister shows up and, oh, I'm so glad they come. I want you to meet my brother or my sister. Well, that's our Jesus and then he, he, he appeals to several Old Testament prophecies, as Hebrews does over and over again in Psalm 22. We read this messianic psalm that starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it gives this graphic description of crucifixion. My, my bones are out of joint. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. Uh, they've pierced my hands and my feet. They divided up my garments among them. And that was all said by King David before crucifixion was ever invented in the mind of man. 
And then later, in the same psalm, we find the words, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Certainly in the writer of Hebrews' mind, and certainly in the Hebrew Christian's mind, they would realize that was written in the context of messianic suffering. And the Messiah who suffered for us tells of God's name to his brothers. He applauds, this, this, this messianic psalm calls us brothers. In, in uh, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17, it says, I will put my trust in him. The, the entire verse says, I wait for the Lord who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope or trust in him. Now, that was a psalm, or, or that was a, a prophecy written during a time where God was judging his people. And so, it was legitimate for Isaiah to write, he has hidden his face from Jacob. And yet, it is a messianic psalm or, or, or text as well. And so, Hebrews applies it to our Savior and says, I'll wait for the Lord. I will hope or trust in him. And that emphasizes Jesus' experience when he lived on this earth. Think about it. Jesus had to trust his father. He prayed to his father, seeking God's blessing. He did not simply come down and pull out his omnipotent power and just operate. He lived in dependence upon his father. In 1 Peter 2, it speaks of Jesus suffering on the cross. It said when he suffered, he didn't retaliate. And he, when he was reviled, he didn't utter threats, but rather he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Imagine Jesus anticipating the cross and the death that he would die and the wrath of God that he would bear, trusting my Father will vindicate my righteousness and my Father will raise me from the dead. He trusted his father. He lived his life. He overcame sin with the very same resources available to you and me. That's why he's able to help us. He didn't pull out his omnipotent card and say, Satan, uh, you can't touch me. I'm omnipotent. He did the same thing we must do. He pulled out scripture and fought valiantly against the enemy. In the very next verse in Isaiah chapter 8, begins with these words, uh, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given to me. We are children of God the Father. He is the Son means we are his brothers and sisters. And he's not ashamed to own us in that way, to identify with us in spite of all of our weaknesses and all of our embarrassing failures, in spite of the shame that you and I might bring upon the family name, even as believers following and Falling sometimes. He delights to own us as brothers. There's an experiential solidarity he has with us. He suffered, shared in our suffering. There is a, a family, as it were, solidarity. He shared our nature and our family nature. But there's also an essential solidarity he shared in our flesh and blood. That sort of permeates the entire text, but the focus here is, is that very thing. In verse 14, since therefore the children share flesh and blood, that's, we share that with each other, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one 
who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. Flesh and blood speaks to your and my essential makeup. We are flesh and blood. The reason we suffer is because we're mortal flesh and blood. Flesh and blood that's under the curse. We share that with each other. We have that in common. We experience things like fatigue and hunger and thirst. We experience broken hearts and sorrow and grief. We experience illness and pain, and eventually we die. I, I know that Jesus experienced fatigue. I mean, the disciples, many of whom were, were experienced fishermen, they were out on the, their, their home territory, Sea of Galilee, in the middle of a storm, and they're fearing for their lives. Lord, don't you care that we perish? What's he doing? He's asleep. He was so tired. He was sleeping through a storm that experienced fishermen thought was going to kill them. That's tired. In order to serve as a mediator between God and man, it was necessary for Jesus to partake of the very same things. He willingly took to himself. He willingly shared flesh and blood. He took all of the limitations that go along with it. Now, again, we know he was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. He fasted and prayed in the desert or wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. I dare say he was hungry and thirsty after that. He was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. He experienced fatigue, sorrow, and pain. He wept. And I'm quite sure that on occasion, Jesus also got sick, just like we do. Jesus is a carpenter. How many of you guys do woodwork or your carpenters? How many times do you get splinters? I imagine Jesus had his share of splinters. I imagine Jesus had his share of smashed thumbs and other occupational hazards that go along with working with wood and tools. His human experience was not at all unlike ours, except he never sinned. And the reason he partook all of those things with us, the reason he entered into and shared that solidarity with us in our human flesh and blood is that he might destroy the devil. As you read these words, you might be taken aback. Whoa, wait a minute, what does it mean? That the devil has the power of death. I thought God has all power over life and death. Ultimately, God does have all power over life and death. Remember, Satan came to God and said, I want to uh, prove to you that Job only serves you because you give him goodies. So you let, me, you let me afflict him and see. He'll curse you to your face. And God says, okay, do what you will, but you must not touch him. So he eliminated everything else in Job's life except his wife. He left her because she was going to try to get him to complain and curse God. Uh, I don't want to be tough on Job's wife. She lost everything Job lost. I'll be, I need to realize that. But Satan said, okay, uh, you, you were right, I was wrong, but you know what? If you let me afflict him personally, I'm sure he'll curse you to your face. And God said, okay, do what you will, but you may not kill him. So whatever power Satan has over death is a, 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 a secondary power, a, 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 a a power under the control, the ultimate control of God. One of the commentators, Philip Hughes, says that the power of death is held by the devil only in a secondary and not an ultimate sense. But God is the one who's absolutely sovereign over life and death. He has the ultimate power over all of these things. But when Jesus went to the cross, he crushed the power of sin and death, and he defeated Satan. Now, Jesus' death, please hear me. You might have heard people talk about, you know, Jesus' death is a ransom. Well, who did he pay the ransom to? He paid Satan off. 
No, Jesus wasn't paying Satan. Jesus was crushing Satan. He was satisfying God's holy and righteous demands. He was fulfilling the divine requirements of God's law, experiencing the wrath of God. But in his death, Jesus did conquer Satan. See, when Jesus actually died, Satan thought he won. Satan was convinced at that point he had triumphed over the Son of God. And then when Jesus rose triumphant over sin and death, he also was triumphant over the devil. The serpent had bruised his head, or excuse me, the serpent had bruised his heel, but he had crushed the serpent's head. Death has been defeated. Now, they, Satan's a defeated foe. He's not utterly eradicated yet. I, I, when I was in, in college, I, I met a young man in the hospital. He was on a ventilator in the intensive care unit because he'd run over a rattlesnake several times with his truck. And he went to pick that rattlesnake up so he could make himself a rattlesnake skin belt like his brothers had. And the reflexes that were still there in that snake, even though he was dead, popped and hit him on the hand, and the guy almost died. He was in intensive care for about a month. Satan's a defeated foe, but that doesn't mean he's not dangerous still. But he's still defeated. He was crushed by our Savior, the captain of our salvation, the author of our salvation. And the day will come when, he will be cast, when Satan will be cast into that lake of fire for all time. Because Jesus defeated him. But that could only happen He could only deliver us from death by becoming one of us and experiencing that with us and even in our place. And through his death, he delivers us from death itself and from the fear of death. Hebrews describes our lost condition here. It says, through the fear of death, we were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, some might go, Pastor Jamie, I'm not afraid of death. I dare say most of us live in a very secure, very safe environment. We don't experience people around us dropping from all sorts of things we can't control on a regular basis. I've been in countries where that is the normal experience. They, people all around them die. And people can live in utter fear and terror of death. And if you don't think people in our country have a fear of death, look what happened when COVID broke out and we couldn't control it. I mean, the fear of death gripped the hearts of men. We try to insulate ourselves from every conceivable danger around us. We wear helmets and put on seatbelts and we purify our water and we get inoculations or we take vitamins or, we, uh, or whatever we do to try to fend off death. And Hebrews says, not only are we in slavery to sin, we're in bondage to the fear of death. But hear me, if you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you don't need to be afraid of death. It's not the terrible enemy that it once was. In fact, it's the passageway to glory. When my mother was on her deathbed, I asked her, Mom, I've seen real Christians who look at death with great anticipation because they can't wait to be with their Savior. And I've seen Christians who look at death with great fear because of how 
frightening the experience is. And we talked about Pilgrim's Progress where Christian is crossing the river and Hopeful goes across and he is, is confident and secure, but Christian is afraid he's going to be swept away. And he cries out to his friend, Hopeful, I'm lost, I'm undone. And Hopeful says, my brother, I have felt the bottom and it's firm. And together they both made it across. Just as secure. But one feared and one didn't. We don't need to live in that fear. We can live on the firm foundation of our Savior Jesus and be hopeful. When a loved one dies, we experience loss. We experience sorrow. A gaping hole uh, happens in our hearts. And if somebody just comes along and says, aren't you so glad he's with heaven? He's in heaven now. Aren't you so glad she never suffers anymore? There's a part of it that says, well, of course. But my heart's broken. Don't make light of that. I talked to a, a seminary professor a few years ago at his aunt's, or excuse me, his uncle's funeral. He went to his aunt and he said, aren't you glad Uncle Tony is rejoicing with Jesus right now? And she looked at him and said, yes, I am. But we were one for 50 years and that half of me has been ripped away. And it absolutely rocked his world to realize how flippant we can be about sorrow. We need not fear our own death. <laughs> we probably should fear the death of others more than our own in that sense. But Paul, as he looks at the prospects of his own in, impending death, he uses the phrase absent from the body, present with Christ, or absent with the body at home with the Lord. Nothing to fear. And, and, and this greatest expression of the love of God was that he made, uh, met our greatest possible need at the greatest possible cost. Jesus delivered us from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin and the fear of those eternal consequences for our sin. Hear me. Do you know that deliverance? Do you know that redemption? Do you know what it is to be set free and to walk before the Lord with confidence? knowing that Jesus calls you brother or sister. If you're not a Christian, that doesn't apply to you. But he invites you. Why would you not come to a Savior such as this, a Savior who understands all that you go through except for sin and shame? No regrets. Some of us have regrets that we feel like we may never live down. Jesus had none. He needed none. But he understands what led to those in your life. And he's there to help if you'll come to him and turn away from your sin, repent and put your faith and trust in him, what he has done, he'll give you that life. Why would you not? Why would you not? If you are a Christian, you have trusted in Christ. You, he is the captain of your salvation, the author of your salvation. He's also your brother, your elder brother. And he's not ashamed to identify with you. He is delighted to own you as his beloved brother or sister. He was willing to identify with your weaknesses, your frailty and mortality and suffering. He was even willing to identify with your condemnation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it said, God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us or in our place so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was willing to identify with your guilt of sin to set you free from it. And so now, because of what he has done in giving us life, we're redeemed. We're children of God. We're brothers and sisters of one another. How precious is that? But we're also brothers 
and sisters of the Lord Jesus himself, and he is delighted, delighted to call us so. You know, the scriptures have many lovely, wonderful metaphors to describe our relationship with Christ. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep. He's the bridegroom, we're the bride. Some of us guys go, I, that doesn't resonate with me as much. Some of you ladies are like, wow, that's amazing. But we can all resonate with, he's my elder brother. I never had a brother, now I have one. And the fact that that he is my brother becomes a source of great joy and security and dignity. There was a poet in England in the late 1600s, or 1600s, early 1700s. Before he was converted, his name was Jack Dunn. He signed his D-O-N-N-E. He signed his poetry, Jack Dunn. He was called a cavalier poet. And he wrote some pretty raunchy stuff for that day. And then by God's grace, he saved him and transformed him. And from that point, his, his poetry was almost exclusively about God's grace and who God is and his glory and Jesus and redemption. And he signed his poets, poems, John Donne. And he wrote these, what he called holy sonnets, these, these poems meditating on who Jesus is for him and what God has done for us in Christ. In one of his holy sonnets, he asked the question, well, if thou love God, is he thee? In other words, 1 John says, we love because he first loved us. Would you love God the way he loves you? If that's something you aspire to, that's something you desire, do you want to learn to love God the way he loves you? Well, here's what you need to do. He says, then digest my soul this wholesome meditation. In other words, think about what I'm getting ready to write. And then he writes of the, 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 the grace of God that comes to us in, uh, in, in the plan of redemption, the incarnation of Christ, and God's election. He chose us to be adopted as his sons. The death of Christ, the Sabbath endless rest that awaits every Christian. And he, he says, meditate on these things. Think about these things that it might stir your heart to love God as he loves you. And then he closes with these two lines. He says, t'was much that man would be made like make God, excuse me, t'was much that man would be made like God before. In other words, an amazing thing that God would create us in his image. But that God should be made like man. Much more. It's amazing that God would create us in his image. To share the glories and the wonder of what it is to have creative ability that the other animals don't have. To have relationship that no other animal can have. To have intelligence and wisdom and all those things. To know justice and mercy and love and compassion. It's amazing that God would share that with us, but it's even more amazing that when we rebelled against him and defiled that, God himself in the person of his son would then become like us. He would be made like man. That is much more amazing. And he would do so for the purpose of redeeming for himself a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Christian, hear me. Your Savior is not distant. He's not far off and he's not out of touch. I'm sure he knows how much a loaf of bread costs, but he also knows about every ache and sorrow in your heart. He knows about your sins. He knows what you're ashamed of and your regrets. He wants to heal the brokenness of our lives. So he invites us to come as a great high priest. We're going to look at that a little bit more next week. He is not incapable of relating to the things that impact your life because he shared your suffering. 
He shared your very nature. He shared your flesh and blood. And his love for you is real and it's costly. It's intimate. 